This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. Borders seem to be all over the news lately. You've got trade wars, Brexit, and of course, Trump's wall. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring how borders are created and blurred in the world of food. We try to focus a lot on the fact that they are chefs by nature, uh, that the refugee thing is just a status for them. And after the Soviet space ended, I don't think there was much research. It was all considered just Soviet food or Russian food. And I don't think it gives a lot of those cultures credit. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about innovators, entrepreneurs, career changers, creative people, and other assorted uh, nutcases who have made a transition from other industries to work in food. I have two people to introduce you to today. Unfortunately, or fortunately for her, I guess, but unfortunately for us, uh, Jenny is in Morocco eating beautiful things, and you should follow her on Instagram at, at Chef Jenny Dorsey because everything she's eating looks amazing. But it means she's not here in the studio with me today. So I'm joined actually by a guest co-host, my Burlap and Barrel co-founder, Ori Zohar. Ori, thanks for joining us. Yay. <laughs> and uh, we have an amazing guest uh, this week. I guess we have amazing guests every week, but I'm particularly excited to introduce Min Tsai, who's the founder and CEO of Hodo Foods. Min, thanks for joining us. Yay. Yeah, all right. Here all we right. go. We're in Brooklyn. Here in Brooklyn, we've got a little a little whiskey on the on the microphone table and uh, <laughs> and we're ready to go. Um so Min, tell us uh, what is Hodo Foods? What do you make and uh, what's the the story? Great. Um well, Hodo Foods, it's a food company that I started 15 years ago. Um we started out um making tofu, but in the last 5 years or so, most of our products are now categorized in the plant-based food space. So you find us everywhere these days, um, from Target to Whole Foods uh, to Fresh Direct. So we're a national company. We've been around 15 years, and um, we just make delicious food, Ethan. Yeah, as I think most food companies try to make some, it's easier for some companies than for others. <laughs> um, what, uh, what, what's your process for making tofu? What makes your tofu different from what people might have tasted before? Right, so I started the business because I grew up in Vietnam and I ate delicious tofu growing up with my grandfather, lots of mom and pop tofu shops in the neighborhoods. Um, but then when I came here, uh, you know, such artisan tofu just didn't exist. So silly me, um, I decided that I want to make tofu and learn how to make it. And, uh, you know, it happened during the time where farmers markets were proliferating, where organic food was really important for consumers. And it also happened that I grew up in the Bay Area, which is one of the epicenters of foods in the U.S., so these combinations of interest and, you know, receptions from consumers led me to basically tinker and test at the farmer's markets and eventually build a plan to make tofu. 
So I'm happy to walk walk people through the tofu making process if it makes sense. Yeah, let's let's talk about uh, those early days. You had worked in finance. You'd worked on Wall Street for for quite a while before starting the company. Right. So tell us about that process. <laughs> the the farmers market launch. The uh, what was the first time that you you made tofu? How did how did that idea come about? Right. So yeah, definitely huge transitions there. Um, you know, being a typical immigrant kid with parents that have high expectations. Um, you know, I, I was a good kid, went to good schools, you know, did all the proper schooling and whatnot. And I ended up working as an investment banker um, in New York, in fact. Um, and, um, and it was great. It was, it was really good because I made a lot of money as an investment banker. Um, I learned a lot about investment banking, which is in itself a a very interesting business, but um, I left because um, I just didn't know what why people had to work so hard with so much money, and so being a curious and um, an autodidact, I decided that I need to try new things. So I went from investment banking into management consulting, and and there too there was a lot to learn about how to run uh, businesses and how to think strategically. Um, so basically, you know, I'm one of these folks that um, do something for a few years, you know, try to learn as much as I can, and then got to move on to the next things. And, uh, you know, about 15 years ago, that next thing happened to be a food business. And tofu um, was one of the ideas that really um, stuck. Were there particular lessons that you learned in management consulting or investment banking that you've applied to tofu making? Is there is there much overlap? Absolutely. I think um, there's the business side and then there's the making side, which is much more culinary based. Um, from a business standpoint, sure, you know, being able to understand finance, being able to understand operations, um, being able to put together a business plan to raise money, um, to look at spreadsheets, to do uh, market research, all of that comes from my business and finance background. So I didn't come into it from a culinary background, um, but much more from a business background. So I learned the culinary piece um, after I started the business and started tinkering around learning how to make tofu. So how, how did you learn how to make tofu? <laughs> you know, uh, we have a t-shirt that says, who's your tofu master? And, and most people are like, wow, cool. But it's really ironic because um, it's, it's kind of like an internal joke that very few people get. And, and the reason we made that shirt is because there is no such thing as a tofu master. Um, I had to learn tofu um, making from a small tofu manufacturer in the Bay Area. And um, I learned it just like you would, you would learn anything like cheese making. You go there and you're like, hey, can I volunteer? Can I stage for you? Um, and in that process, um, you, you learn how they make it. There are no systematic scientific way. Um, there was a lot of apprenticeship and observation. And, um, and that's exactly what I did. Um, what I managed to do, um, just because of how my head and my mind works, is I look at these very random way of sort of measuring and whatnot, and I try to systematize it as much as possible. Like, for example, um, you know, I would ask the tofu maker, how much uh, coagulant do you put into that milk? And he would say something like, well, you start with uh, a bowl, and if it's not enough, you add more. 
and you know it's not refined or precise at all. So then I would be watching him and saying, "Okay, well, I'm gonna measure that. Is it 10 ounce? Is it 12 ounce, etc.? For a batch of soy milk. So so that's how I learned how to make tofu. So yeah, walk us through that that tofu making process. I mean, people are I think pretty familiar with tofu, but I think most people don't know a whole lot about how you get from a soybean to a the, the white block. Right. How does that happen? So tofu has been around for 3,000 years or more. Um, it's, it's sort of an accidental discovery. Uh, it's very similar to cheese making. Um, if you think about cheese making, some dude put milk in a bladder and there's some acid in there and it sort of curdle into a cheese. Tofu is very similar. Some dude in Asia was cooking a pot of beans um, and you cook beans universally the same way. You soak it overnight and you slow cook it. Um, and somebody decided that it didn't taste savory or good enough, so they added salt and it became a salty bean juice kind of thing. And then they decided to add vinegar, and that's when the curdle happened. So um, tofu is essentially a high-protein soy milk with a coagulant that basically turned it into a bean curd, very similar to cheese making. The only main difference between cheese making and tofu making is that in cheese making, you have a live culture. You use rennet. Whereas in tofu making, you use a coagulant that's a mineral, calcium sulfate. Uh, but the process is the same. So um, first, instead of milking from a cow, you basically take soybeans, high protein soybeans, you grind it, you cook it, and you separate the pulp from the milk. So that milk has very high protein, um, it's very creamy, um, has a vegetable flavor, um, a legume flavor, um, and then you add the coagulant and it curdles or it becomes a curd just like cheese. Is that milk something that people would drink or is, that, is it going to taste comparable to soy milk that people have tasted? It does actually. So um, if you drink soy milk in the supermarket these days, um, it's likely that they basically have added other flavors because the assumption is um, the American public is not familiar with the taste of a beanie juice. Um, but in Asia, it's really prized. Um, you know, people seek a soybean that has a flavor of the beans. Whereas here, we're not there yet, but we'll get there eventually. Um, so for us, we, we try to, we, we don't mask that taste in our tofu. We want you to experience it. We're the first people that tell you that actually tofu has taste and is not just a blank canvas. I, uh, I lived above a, a, a small storefront tofu factory in Chinatown in Manhattan, probably close to 10 years ago, and the best soy milk I've ever tasted. I would get some, basically every, anytime I walked <laughs> in or out of my apartment building, I would get a bottle of soy milk. Uh, and, and it had exactly that flavor that you're talking about. It tasted very green. There was this like sort of springtime flavor yeah. in the soy milk. That's how I grew up drinking soy incredible. milk. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so how does your tofu taste? How does, how does that flavor express itself in the tofu itself? Right. So, uh, you know, one of the myths that we try to shatter is the fact that tofu has flavor. And we have to prove that in the making of it, um, in the tasting of it. So if you actually get our tofu in the supermarket, um, what you'll find is, the first thing you'll find is it has the highest protein among all tofu. Um, the reason it has the highest protein is because we make our tofu with a really thick soy milk. So the metaphor here is, imagine eating a cheese 
that's made with skim, skimmed milk versus a cheese that's made with high-fat whole milk. So our tofu is the equivalent of a high-fat whole milk cheese versus a skimmed milk tofu, which, which is generally what you find in the, in the marketplace because tofu these days is quite commoditized. Um, there are only two big tofu makers in the entire country, and they basically own more than 80% of the marketplace. And pretty much every tofu you eat, it's made by one of these folks. So we're sort of that artisan company that's really breaking through and changing minds. Um, and for the first time in the last decade, tofu consumption has hit double digit in 2018. Wow. So we're super excited to hear that. And I think another, uh, another thing that you are doing differently from other tofu companies is, is creating tofu for Western, traditionally Western cuisine applications. Uh, how does that work? How do you convince right. a chef at, at Danielle, a classic French restaurant, to use tofu on their menu? <laughs> no, that's a great question. Yeah, so because tofu is perceived as this Asian, has, what, what, tofu has an Asian heritage and is perceived as an Asian food. Um, and, and, you know, I, I didn't want it just to be an Asian food. It didn't have to be an Asian food. So when I started tinkering and coming up with recipes, I like to come up with recipes that I like to eat. And a lot of them are not necessarily Asian recipes. And when we work with chefs um, through the farmer's markets, these relationships blossom into a lot of uh, R&D in, in the chef's kitchen. So while the chefs is learning from us, um, the textures, the flavors, how to work with tofu and yuba, we're learning from them about flavors, about trends. Um, and, and through this process is where we come up with a whole line of products that are not Western, I mean, I'm sorry, not Asian recipes at all. Like, you know, one of our best sellers are Moroccan tofu cubes. And we have a harissa tofu cube. We have barbecue. And none of, none of these are Asian flavors, but they're doing really well in the marketplace. Why do you think that is? I think there's some, um, A, I think it just tastes great. These products, everything we make, you know, it's important that they taste great. So we test it. We have the luxury at the farmer's markets, small market groups. Um, we have relationship with retailers that are willing to test smaller markets. So it allows us to iterate. We have chefs that work with us uh, to help refine these recipes. So when something tastes great, um, I don't think people care whether it's tofu or whether it's high protein plant-based or meat or whatever. You know, I think the first thing you have to do is conquer the taste piece. And we've successfully done that with a lot of our recipes. And then everything else is kind of like icing on the cake. And you know, you eat it and you're like, damn, this tastes good. And you're like, wait, and you look at the ingredients and you're like, whoa, there are only 10 ingredients and I understand everything here and it's organic um, and it's good for me. So, you know, everything downstream is really icing on the cake. You know, everything we put out there has to taste great. The, um, the food scene today is pretty different from the food scene, at least the food entrepreneurship scene was 15 years ago, maybe, maybe across the board, the dishes that restaurants are serving, <laughs> what you can get at the supermarket. Um, 
And, and I think you're, you're different from a lot of the guests who we have on. Most people have started their business in the last, you know, five or so years. You've been around a fair amount longer than that. I'm an old man. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but your business is definitely more established than, than a lot of the entrepreneurs who, who join us on the podcast. So um, how, do, how did you, what was the climate like when you were starting your business? What did that allow you to do? And what do you see happening today for, for food entrepreneurs? Yeah, you're right. I think, um, you know, starting a, a food business 15 years ago, um, it's very different from starting a food business even five years ago. Um, you know, my cohort uh, at the time in the Bay Area were really amazing uh, long-term entrepreneurs. You know, we're looking at Steve Sullivan of Acme Bread. You know, we're looking at Calgary Creamery. We're looking at Blue Bottle. Um, most of the, these businesses are still around today. Um, Many of them started out um, at the farmers markets, um, and um, it was through the farmers markets movement, the organic movement, the eat local movement that um, we were able to thrive. And um, and also at the time, uh, it wasn't as easy to raise uh, capital like it is today. I think um, in the last decade between. Um, all the TV shows about food, um, between the, the interest in the food space and the climate, uh, the environmental impact of food, um, we are having more and more conversations about food. The interest level by the consumers are much higher um, today than they were a decade ago. And um, we are also seeing a lot of money coming into food investments um, following um, the, the tech um, approach. And, you know, in the Bay Area, there's a lot of tech money going into food, um, especially, um, you know, more recently, in the last five years, there is now a whole category called food tech. You know, and, and there's a lot of a lot of that is related to the environment. Um, and um, so there are a lot more money coming into food. And I think because of that, I think entrepreneurs are are having to move a lot faster um, especially if they take investments. And um, it's harder to be patient uh, whether you have a choice or not. Do you think you, if, if, I don't know, hypothetically, if you were starting your business today instead of 15 years ago, how would you, have, how would you be doing things differently? Or, or? Wow. Yeah, um, that's a good question. I'm not sure, actually. I think, I think my DNA has always been um, to, to take sort of two steps and then figure out the next five steps. So we're very good at pivoting. Um, we're pretty opportunistic. Um, so I'm not sure I would just follow the tech model of just taking a lot of money and acquiring a lot of customers and not looking at the bottom line. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I would do a lot differently today than I did 10, 15 years ago. So take us back. So you're, you're in year one. You're deciding that you're going to start making tofu. You're selling it part at farmer's markets. Talk to us about the first few years and kind of how you transitioned through that. And especially what I'm curious to hear is as somebody who came from outside of the food industry, what were the most challenging kind of gaps that you had to, to kind of cross? Right. Um, I think I was, I was really learning because my mindset is the first couple of years were really testing grounds. The farmer's markets were testing grounds for me to prove a concept. And the concept was, A, you know, can I make a better tofu? 
um, a better food, a tastier food. Um, and there are a lot of models there. Like, like I mentioned before, better bread, better cheeses, better chocolate. Um, and, and the farmer's markets were great places to do those experiments. You know, so I was constantly testing recipes, price points, and getting feedback. It's the best feedback loop um, and pivoting to, get, to give the customers what they want, what they need. Um, and, and we were very lucky to grow from one farmer's markets to at the peak of our business, we were doing 12 farmer's markets a week. And that was enough to sustain the business and to pay people uh, a meaningful wage. Um, uh, and so when, when, you're, when you're in that mode, or at least when I was in that mode, I wasn't really thinking about gaps. I'm sure there were a lot of things I wasn't looking at, um, but it, was, it, was, it, it required a, a certain amount of focus on just making sure uh, a few simple things are consistent. Like, let's make sure that it tastes great. You know, let's make sure that the food is safe for people to eat. Um, this was also a time where the regulations on food uh, were not as strict as they are today from a food safety standpoint. But we all know that one false step and the food business will go under. Um, so we've, we've, been, we've been exceptionally vigilant in terms of quality and, and, and safety and whatnot. So I don't know whether I saw any other gaps at the time. Um, so sorry, I couldn't answer that yeah. question. What were, well, what were some of the mistakes that you made or some of the, the things that you got wrong? Maybe a particular flavor or style of preparing tofu or a, uh, something that customers didn't respond to that you thought they would? We were, we were perfect. <laughs> no, um, it wasn't so much about recipes because, you know, I don't really believe in right or wrong. I just believe in, like, you try something and it didn't work and you try something else. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I, I think in terms of areas where we could have, we learned a lot from was much, had a lot to do with timing of um, um, building our business. Like, for example, um, we launched our plant in 2008. We built this manufacturing plant, and it was during a recession. And that was very challenging because um, we weren't growing as much as we thought we wanted to. Um, we had all this investment in capital uh, expenditure to build the plant. And it was a very scary time um, from, from an any, for any entrepreneur. So it, it, it's times like that that you really have to figure out, okay, how else can I pivot the business? So what, what did you do? <laughs> um, well, fortunately, um, we're a pretty open company. We brought people together and we said, hey, you know, we might have to lay off folks. But then at the time I had six employees and they decided they wanted to work 60% time so that nobody got laid off. And um, it was a great lesson for me in terms of camaraderie and community um, and, and we still carry that lesson forward today in terms of how we treat people uh, at Hodo. Yeah, so how, how have you extended that, that value system or that philosophy to the way that you run the business now? Yeah, it, it's, it's not easy. Um, we, we've gone from six employees to more than 160 wow. today. Um, you know, our plant has, has grown, you know, three times since then. Um, I think what we've learned uh, from the early days, is, it's... Um, Try to communicate with people uh, as much as you can in terms of directions of the company. Try to provide as much information as possible. Um, we send people to classes 
um, we make sure that um, they learn English, they communicate well. Um, I still teach a class for our employees once every two weeks, um, talking about any topics that they want, um, as far as the challenges of working there, um, how to be fair, um, how to sort of, you know, give verbal warnings, how to ask for help. So a lot of training. We do a lot of training um, about the workplace and about culture at Hodo. Why is that a philosophy that you've you've built into the business? Well, I think at a personal level, um, I believe that um, as an immigrant, um, I believe in in meritocracy. I believe that uh, everyone deserves a chance. Um, I certainly have benefited from that, and um, a lot of our employees are immigrants, and um, you know, we want to make sure that they are at an environment where they can take care of their families, um, whether they need to pick up their kids early. So we have to work around their schedule, make sure that um, they're not just doing a job to make money, but they're doing a job where they learn some skills, uh, technical skills, people management skills, so that they can go somewhere else or, or grow with us. Um, and, and in the Bay Area, it, it's super challenging to hire and keep people. And it's our way um, of, of maintaining um, to make sure that we, we don't have a lot of turnover. And, and it works. And it works, yeah. We have very low turnover, and we have an exceptional benefits program um, for our employees. That's great. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in two minutes. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000 square foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese American restaurant, is currently on show. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese American restaurants tracing their nearly 170-year history and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Check out MOFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org slash events. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dana Cowan, and I'm the host of Speaking Broadly here on HRN. Every week, I conduct intimate interviews with the brilliant, powerful women in the food world. We discuss their lives, their careers, and the ways in which they navigate the world at large. You can find Speaking Broadly wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back with, we're, we're here with Min Tsai, who is the CEO and founder of Hodo Foods, an amazing tofu company based in Oakland, California. And uh, we're also joined by my Burlap and Barrel co-founder, Ori Zohar, who is our guest co-host this week while Jenny is 
off having more fun adventures in Morocco than she would be having if she were stuck in this in our studio in Brooklyn. Hello, hello. Um, so one thing that comes up for for me and for Ori in our business a lot, and and maybe maybe you have some thoughts on this, is the the balance between idea and operation, between vision and implementation, between um, often the, often those things come from different people. I think this is common in a lot of businesses, a lot of whether it's a co-founder relationship or a colleague relationship where I'll have some crazy idea and I'll, I mean, just to use our business as an example, I'll have some crazy idea. I'll figure out how to make it happen and it's going to be extremely imperfect and, you know, strap, like, scrape together with uh, duct tape and, and force of will. And, and it happens the first time. And then Ori being the systems thinker comes in and goes, okay, we're not going to do it. I get very stressed out. <laughs> I come back. We're not going to do it that way again. Uh, right. And, and come, you come back and go ahead. Yeah. And, and then try to figure out how do we take this one off? And if, if there's like, if, if there's a good reaction from it, we test it out. We see if people come back and say, Hey, we like that. then we figure out how do we turn this into something we can repeat that we can do more of and that we can do efficiently. You guys are perfect for each other. I guess. Well, so, so I mean, we, we tell us about that process for you. You, um, you, you seem like you're more systems-oriented. You seem like you, you enjoy the operational aspect of, of running your business. Um, how, do you, how do you combine that with ideas? How do you make sure the, the ideas are still flowing, even right. when you get buried in the minutia of you know, building a new plant and, and running a, a significant team? Right. Um, you know, the thing about ideas is that there are no stupid ideas, right? You have to honor ideas, you know? So I'm a big believer in ideas. Um, so it's very hard for me when I hear an idea, um, especially if it's an idea that I've heard before and I can sort of, it's kind of like the matrix for me in my head. I'm like, and it's all, like I can see the path and I was like, hmm. But I can't, I never tell an engineer, entrepreneur like I don't know about that idea it's really asking them to answer certain questions that lead them to think through the idea is what I'm all about Um, I think there are so many ideas out there Um, and and we we live with ideas we survive because we have ideas but I think the way I like to think about it is um, much more operational focus so um, what I would say to entrepreneurs is continue to come up with the ideas, but either make sure that you have a partner that really can help you sort of plan it out a little bit more. Um, I'm a big believer in the 80-20 rule. Um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I take two steps and I pivot. Like, you know, we believe in iteration. So take that idea. I think what you guys are doing, it's, it's really solid. You know, something worked figure out what is it that made it work and then duplicate and repeat and then get it bigger and bigger and bigger. So um, I, I think finding the right partnership, it, it's a big part. And I'm very lucky because um, I have a great partner, my, my business partner, John Notes, um, who's also our CFO. So he and I are constantly bantering ideas back and forth. You know, not necessarily product development, but a lot of ideas in terms of the direct, in terms of the direction of the business, investments, you know, how to move forwards uh, in terms of the marketplace and such. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about how you met your business founder and how that that came to be? Oh, right. Um, no, it was uh, it was serendipity. So I was working at the farmers markets. 
Um, this is, uh, I think, three years into the business. And uh, John saw the first article that was written about Hodo in um, a now no, no longer um, newspaper called the Bay Area Guardian. And uh, he called me up and he said, hey, you know, I like what you're doing. I think you're onto something. Um, how can I get involved? And I said to John and I said, oh, wow, you know, you, you have an MBA and you went to great school and you, you, you worked in China and you speak Chinese and all this amazing set of skills, but I can't afford to pay you. So, um, you know, come work at the farmer's market and figure this out and help me grow the business. And uh, he decided to do that. And so we've been really good partners for a decade. You know, John and I worked together to raise our, the capitals we need to build the plant. And, uh, you know, we've been, we've been working together ever since. What, go ahead, Ethan. What's your balance of, of uh, roles or responsibilities, skills? What do you bring to the table? What does he bring to the table? Sure. I think John is our CFO, so he oversees all of our finances. And, and that's a luxury for me. You know, like if, if you learn from, from sort of everyone would tell you as a CEO, you have to look at the numbers every day. And it's true to a lot in a lot of ways. But for me, like I trust John, so I don't have to do that. Similarly, John trusts me that I'm running a great operations, you know, in terms of people safety, food safety, putting out delicious products, hiring great people to help manage the business. So it's we have that trust through experience. Um, and as long as we're on the same page in terms of directionally where the business is going, um, the rest, we, we give each other the, the independence and trust that we will come to each other um, when we need um, to bounce an idea. I think something that's challenging for a lot of, especially early stage food entrepreneurs, and especially entrepreneurs who are in a position where that you were in, where you'd been running the business for a few years before your business partner came on, is is that feeling of, of letting go, of ceding control, of right. uh, putting your vision in someone else's hands, uh, and then navigating the conflict that, that can arise from that stress. How do you and John deal with it? Uh, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs right. who, are, who are looking at those situations themselves? No, no, I think that's an important point. I think, you know, founders in general are sometimes so tied to the title of founder, to the ideas themselves, that they're unable to let that go. Um, fortunately for me, um, you know, John, John and I um, are very open to each other and um, we we don't have like I mean we have egos but not massive egos um, even even while we were at the farmers markets I, I remember one of the first thing John was concerned about was like are people coming to buy our tofu at the farmers markets because Min is there um, and and that was a great question so so we had to test that theory out we have to set up farmers markets where I'm not the one selling to see if there's any dip in sales. So we have to prove that people are eating our products because it's delicious and not because, you know, some guy out there is convincing them how to do it and how to eat it. So so these are the t that's just one example of how we work together. Um, and I think I think that's something that every entrepreneur or founder um, needs to figure out on his or her own. Um, it's to, to, to work through the ego and letting go. Yeah, that's that's great advice. And so to pick up now, so you're in farmers markets, 
you have a co-founder, you have a factory at this point, your first initial factory. Where where it take us? Where do we go from here? Where does the story lead? I think the story naturally led us through the various trends,、um, the food trends in America. So while the basic ingredient is tofu,、um, you know, somewhat consider back then as very much an Asian food. The trend that the the various trends that we sort of crossed. Really thrusts us into this amazing space of plant-based food,、um, and, and let me sort of explain. So, the first few years were were, were really、um, related to organic food. So, we're, we everything we make is organic. We don't do sort of half this, half that. So, all organic ingredients. There was a, a tremendous interest in that when we first started out. Then the farmers markets. You know, people want to eat closer and understand the foods better and support local、um, businesses.、Um, then restaurants.、Um, we, because we're at the farmers markets, we were able to collaborate with chefs in the Bay Area, and therefore it allows the chefs to really understand the ingredients. And when they understood the ingredients, and they felt very proud of the in- ingredients,、um, it allowed us to really get on their menu. So you know, we we remain the only tofu company that is on all the menus of restaurants that we work with, and it is because of such sort of brand loyalty and delicious food and education that we ended up working with Chipotle, and we are the sofritas、um, tofu for you know thousands of Chipotle nationally, and that in itself was a culinary relationship,、um, you know, the whole idea of. Really high protein, delicious, low process、um, food. So that really blossomed into not only a national business, but also the first non-Asian mass market tofu.、Um, and so from there, you know, we sort of have to build the second plant、um, or expand our, our plant. To basically supply Chipotle and other chains, you know, we supply the entire Silicon Valley, all the commissaries from Google to Facebook to Apple. You know, they use our nuggets and our firm tofu and our braised tofu. So,、um, so it allowed us to really grow primarily in the food service side, branded food service side. And then we started growing on the retail side much more recently in the last five years.、Um, you know, selling locally. Um, to the Whole Foods and the、uh, the natural stores,、um, and then the last three years is when we focus on、um, growing in into the mass market, and what that meant is that we have to communicate to the public that the base ingredient is tofu, but ultimately it's just a really delicious food that now fits into. The category that everyone wants to move towards, which is plant-based diet,、um, we're a little bit ahead of it because we're in the Bay Area. You know, we have folks like Michael Pollan. We have folks that talk about eating closer、um, to the ground, and soybeans.、Um, we've educated people. It comes from the legumes families. So if you're out there drinking peas milk, you know, stuff made with peas protein, it's the same family. So I think. All the informations、um, that people are seeking about soy 
and protein, it's on the public, the research is all there, and the adoption rate is really moving super fast. Um, we've, we've shown people that um, this, this food, it's been around for thousands of years, it's healthy for you, and, uh, and, and you know, the, the interest, the information um, has really allowed us to, in the last two years, grew from like 500 grocery store to 4,000 grocery store. Um, so that's really a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, a lot of work. And and particularly starting in branded retail, which is a right. uh, branded food service rather, which is a, a, a particularly hard place to start to try to convince a chef to, to share their credit, right? Like chefs are not are not known for, for wanting to share credit. Um, how did operationally, how did you make that happen? You were you were you maybe are still the only really branded tofu on the market across the board food service re- retail right yeah so, so how did you extend that brand that you had that you had built and i guess continues to evolve how did you extend that to uh, to restaurants how did you get chefs to want to share that credit yeah i i think it's really related to education collaboration and being open you know for when we opened the, our, our tofu plant we, we basically opened it up for chefs to come and tour. So the onus was on us to really educate the chefs and the culinary programs um, about this amazing and versatile ingredients. Like literally you can go from liquid to solid and every stage of texture. You know, I, I can take a chef to our Yuba table and they'll see soy milk and then the various textures, textures of Yuba. I mean, burrata cheese texture, you know, al dente pasta texture. What's, what's Yuba? You guys, the cream of soy milk. That's it. Thank you. I, I, I've been doing it for so long. I, I think everyone should know about Yuba. They should. If they don't, they should. That's right. And, and now they will. Now they will. Thank you. Um, it's a cream of soy milk. It's a sheet that forms. It's very similar to cream, the cream of your whole milk. Like sometimes if you buy whole milk, you see a layer of cream on a layer of cream on top. Soy milk, because of the thick soy milk we make, there's a layer on top that's called Yuba. Um, it's a Japanese term for the cream of soy milk. And, and how is it used? What does it taste like? What's the texture? Um, it's, it depends on when you harvest it. Now, now I'm going to get geeky on right, you guys. Let's go. I love but it. But basically, if you have milk and you leave it for a while, there's going to be a skin or the cream that rises to the top. And the first sort of, the first texture um, in Japanese, it's called kumiyage, and it means scoop. It means that the cream is so delicate that the only way you can harvest it is you have to use something to scoop it up. Because if you try to pick it up with your fingers, it's going to fall apart. And so it's a delicacy. You know, restaurants like Daniel's and, and it, everywhere uses it as a cream. It's a vegan cream. Um, it's delicious mixed with uni or oysters. Um, and then there are different layers that you can harvest at different times. And each one has a very unique texture. And when you eat it, it's got this amazing, creamy, sweet, fatty mouthfeel that is so novel for chefs that it's hard for them to eat it for the first time. They're making it there and they're like, oh, I got to have it, you know, like, um, and we teach them how to make it. So I think that knowledge is one of the reasons where like, wow, this is so amazing. I got to call them out on the menu. Um, I got to thank Min for showing me all this stuff. Um, it's how we ended up working. You know, Chipotle had a dozen chefs coming through working with us. 
And we have these amazing events that you can see on our website called Tofu Disrupt, where it's annual collaborations with chefs, you know, in New York, in San Francisco, to really take them through the process of tofu and yuba making and educate them about the science and the art, and then allowing them to use their own creativity um, to really help us come up with amazing recipes. Um, so that collaboration is really the, the reason I think we're on all the menus of whether it's a fast casual change like Chipotle or a Daniel in New York or a single thread that's, that's in you know, Napa. So. so really interesting to hear also about your thoughts on managing kind of the cash flow of a food business. Everybody, I think a lot of people as they're starting their company, they know how, where do I get the money to build a factory? Where do I get the money to build inventory? How do I approach this? I know early on you did a little bit of fundraising, but from then on you've been self-financing. So we'd love to just hear a little bit about how you've thought about that and how you've handled kind of the capital component of the business. I wish John was here so he can answer that question. Um, it's kind of like that game show. Can I, can I make a call <laughs> yeah, to friends. a friend? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's very challenging. You know, the reason we've been around for 15 years is because um, we didn't want to grow at sort of warp speed. We didn't want to grow like a tech company. Um, I think in our space, and, and this is really interesting because this, this I realized much recently, if you look at plant-based food, it's a relatively new category. Um, if you look at all the sort of brands in the marketplace today, most of them are making their own products. There are no co-packers in, in that space yet, with the exception of, say, almond milk, maybe. You know, if you look at the vegan or vegan cheese category, the non-dairy cheese category, everyone is making their own cheeses. So it's very difficult for a business like us to find a co-packer. So for us to grow, we can, we, we can only grow if we build more capacity. And to build more capacity, we basically have to make enough money to grow a little bit at a time. And it's lower risk from that standpoint as well. Um, you're, you're not risking capital from investors. And, um, and also, it's not tech. Our category is growing really fast, but there, it, it's not really dominated by someone who's growing like a thousand percent year over year, like a software. So, you know, healthy growth in food and retail food is, you know, double digits. And for us, we've been growing in the last five years, more than 30% year over year. And to us, that's really like stretching and, and very healthy grow. Beyond that, you know, I would hate my lifestyle and the rest of our team would probably hate their lifestyles. Um, in the last few minutes of the of the interview, we transition to a a lighter, more fun, kind of funny personal question segment. So we're gonna throw some funny personal questions at you. And uh, you ready? Sure. <laughs> um, I think. Which one of your many tofu based products uh, do you most closely identify with? Which one do you feel like is the, the best representation of you and your personality? Wow. Definitely Yuba, because it's it's versatile. And um, it's somewhat unique, singular, kind of like me. Mm -hmm. No, I'm kidding. But um, <laughs> versatility. Okay. So, yeah, Yuba. Because what, what are some of the things that you can do with Yuba? Oh, pretty much anything. I can, I can turn Yuba into a cheese. 
I can turn it into a pasta. Um, I can make it into a texture. I can fry it into a chip. You know, that's how amazing Yuba is. And it's, it's got 21 grams of protein per serving. It's as much protein as beef. Yeah. So it's an amazing, amazing uh, cream. What's your uh, favorite unexpected dish to make with tofu? When you tell people I make X with my tofu, they're, they're blown away. I think I'm constantly surprised by how simple, uh, I mean, how people love simple recipes with our tofu. Like, I would take our braised tofu, slice it up, stir fry with some scallion, and people are, are ooing and eyeing over it because they're like, it's smoky. It's got this five spice flavor. What an amazing texture. And I think it, it's a great reminder because I've been at it for 15 years. I don't have the same deep appreciation as I did when I first started out. Um, I, uh, one of the things that I've been waiting to, to pick up is sweet applications for tofu. I mean, there are Chinese and I think across Asia puddings, tofu-based puddings with sugar syrups or other right. sweeteners that are really exceptional. I mean, like panna cotta, but better. I mean, uh, good point. Why, why has that not happened? Why is tofu so specifically associated with savory flavors? Well, I'll give you the short answer because the long answers requires too much scientific explanation. Yeah. Um, there is a great, um, uh, confectionery chef called Michael Ricuti in San Francisco. He's basically tinkered with our tofu more than once. The challenge of tofu is not because it couldn't make really delicious confectionery or sweet. It's the fact that tofu uh, pushes water out and it leaches water. So it makes a lot of products wet. So the silken tofu with the ginger syrup you talked about is one of my favorite. The challenge with that is it doesn't have the shelf life. Mm. So I can make it at a restaurant, and in fact, many of our restaurants make that. You know, you go to State Bird, and they have a silken tofu made with our soy milk with all kinds of savory or sweet topping. So we teach chefs how to do that. Um, but unfortunately, not yet ready for retail prime time. And, I was and, at State Bird two nights ago. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and had some tofu. Um, if you were going to, uh, if you could master a skill overnight, any skill, what would it be? You mean like superhero, like learning how to fly kind well, of thing? I mean, it could be that. Well, I, I meant like like actual Ethan's like, practical no, we're skills, practical. like a, a skill. But but we could talk about your 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 superpower too. What would your superpower? You know, be? I think maybe hang gliding. Hang gliding. Hang gliding. Yeah. Because I like to look at stuff from above. Okay. So that's why the whole superhero looking so out of fly thing. If you were a superhero, your your power would be. I, I want to be like flight? able to fly to fly. Yeah. Where where would you fly to? What would you use it for? Just flying around, checking things out, looking <laughs> looking at the world from a little bit higher up. Just for fun. Just for fun. Yeah. We we ask people this question, you know, periodically, <laughs> and and. Uh, transportation superpower comes up. It's probably the single most common. Right. I want to be able to teleport. I want to be able to fly. It often winds up being a, a very practical consideration. Somebody will That's say, I'm, I'm always late, so I want to be able to teleport. Or <laughs> I don't want to have to sit on an airplane, so I want to be able to fly. But I, I appreciate that your answer is not is not practical at all. It no. would just be fun to just, fly around. Just be fun to fly around, yes. Um, it could be a factor of the congested cities that most of the people on the show come from. Yeah, yeah we are in, in Brooklyn. Subconscious, yeah. yes. Maybe. Ori, what would your, if you could master a skill overnight, what would it be? Oh, I don't know. I don't want to say something like spreadsheets, but... <laughs> no, next, next, pick another answer. Um, 
Um, I think I would love, and this is a this is a skill that I'm actually working on. But I've been living in tiny, tiny apartments awesome. like my entire post college life, and in college also. Um, I really want to get into gardening and growing. And one of my dreams has always been to have a fruit tree, like mm. something that bears fruit. I had that as a kid growing up. And I, for some reason, a 600-square-foot apartment in San Francisco is not conducive to growing <laughs> fruit trees. But I'm going to figure it out. And so I think it's something that's a 2000, maybe 19 yeah, or 2020 goal. That's a good one. You're I, growing a cardamom plant. Yes. As anybody who follows me on Instagram may know, I, I am carefully cultivating a cardamom plant on my windowsill in Queens. Not a whole lot of space. But so get ready for the first burlap and barrel <laughs> cardamom harvest. Carefully. What did you say? Carefully. A ca cultivating, cultivating a cardamom. cardamom in queen yeah <laughs> that is pretty neat that's, uh, and he told me that he pours coffee on the cardamom because the cardamom seems to like it yeah i read that cardamom likes acidic soil and so i've been looking yes. for acids in my kitchen and <laughs> not acid in my anyway um soybeans does not like acidic soil. oh no yeah okay so if I if I grow they a, cannot grow a together field, uh, I won't I won't intercrop it with cardamom. Nope. Um, what what does a soybean field look like since we're on the topic? Soybean grow it's a it's a nitrogen fixing legume, so it grows great with corn. That's why all of our soybeans are grown in the Midwest of the U.S. And what do, what do the plants look like? How, um, how do they grow? They, they look like edamame. I mean. Which they, is they kind of edamame. a vine. Yeah, they are edamame. Good point. Yeah, most people don't know that edamame is young soybeans. Yeah. I, I will have people saying, I'm allergic to soy, but they need edamame. I'm like, okay. Sure. It's Whatever the same thing, right? Um, what, what did you eat for lunch as a kid growing up? What were your favorite lunches? Street food. In Vietnam, it's like anywhere you go, you can get a crepe, you can get sticky rice, you can get a skewer of something, um... You can pick fruit off trees in the neighbor's yards. So um, I was pretty much a street urchin in Vietnam. So most mostly street food. Are the neighbors happy about you picking the fruit or are they chasing you down with a stick? Mm, most of the times they tell me to go away. <laughs> stop stop stealing our, uh, That's our right. oranges or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Um, do you have Vietnamese restaurants in New York or in San Francisco that you really love? You know, I... And I don't know the Vietnamese um, restaurants in New York. In fact, I was texting a friend of mine um, to see whether he has any suggestion. He said, no, my boyfriend who's Vietnamese cooks everything. I'm like, thanks a lot. <laughs> so um, there is one restaurant in, um, in Queens, and I'm blanking on the name. It's a chef from Slanted Door that moved over there. Oh, yeah. Um, bricolage. Yeah. Bric bricolage. Yeah. And it's delicious. In the Brooklyn, last, I think. In Brooklyn, yeah. yeah. Last time I was there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Lynn made a, uh, you know, she, I'm so happy for her. She was a protege of Charles Van um, from Slanted Door, and she came out here and killed it. Yeah. So. Yeah, there does seem to be this sort of moment for Vietnamese food in, in New York City, which has not historically had a great Vietnamese food scene, but... Um, there are a half dozen restaurants, Hanoi House, and on, in, cool. Maybe in, you can uh, give me some recommendations. In the East Village, and and another one that just opened last week, the name of which escapes me at the moment. But um, yeah, I mean, and and getting into some of the regional differences throughout yep. Vietnam, which I think are yeah, totally. I think um, like I recently ate at um, in Oakland at a restaurant that want uh, James Beer called Nayum, mm. and it's a Cambodian restaurant in um, in deep in Oakland. Um, and what's amazing about it is as I was eating the flavors, I can see how how much it is related to Vietnamese food. And um, I agree with you. I think there are 
now is the time to start, well, not just Vietnamese regional cuisine, but any regional cuisine specific to a region, um, I think has tremendous opportunity for, for success. Yeah. Um, any, any other advice, parting words? What, uh, what message would you send to a, an early stage or aspiring food entrepreneur? Um, eat well, make the food delicious. So here, here are my golden rules. One, make it absolutely delicious. And I don't mean delicious just because you love it. Get your friends to taste it. Get your neighbors as broad a population to agree with you, to agree that it's delicious. So that's first and foremost. The second thing after you make it delicious is um, make it cheap. And I know it's not easy, right? So make it delicious, make it cheap. So if you can do those two things, then you'll be able to get into the retail market. All right. And thank you so much for joining us. Where can our listeners find out more about you and where can they find Hodo? Hodo so I'm all over the internet. If you, <laughs> if you go to YouTube or Google Hodo Foods videos, there's like a ton of videos about how we make stuff. You know, my whole history is out in public. Um, but more importantly, if you're in the, in the you know, tri-borough area, Go to Whole Foods, Fresh Direct, Chipotle, Fairway, we're everywhere, Target, and try our tofu. You won't regret it. Thanks. Um, Thank you. And you can uh, find me via, and Ori, I guess, via our spice company, Burlap and Barrel. We're at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram, burlapandbarrel.com. As always, you can reach us why food at heritageradionetwork.org. If you have nominations, feedback, questions for upcoming guests, uh, yeah, always, always feel free to get in touch. And we're at Y Food Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, thanks to Jeet, our awesome engineer, for keeping us alive this hour, and uh, and to uh, the Red Crickets for our theme song, Blind. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.